Welcome to episode 85 of the AAEM Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. AAEM RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Caitlin Parks, a resident at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, as well as current AAEM RSA board member at large, speaks with Dr. Danya Koja, who is the immediate past chair of the Geriatric Committee for AAEM. Today, Drs. Parks and Koja discuss a variety of topics related to the most dangerous diagnosis that you have been missing. Hi, I'm Caitlin Parks. I'm a PGY3 at WashU in St. Louis. I am interviewing Dr. Danya Koja here today on her talk about a very dangerous diagnosis. She is an emergency physician here in the Northeast and has an interest in geriatric and medical education and has been involved with AEM for many years throughout her residency and most recently as the immediate past chair of the geriatric committee. Well, thank you for having me here to talk about the most dangerous diagnosis you've been missing. And I am scared. (laughs) What am I missing? (laughs) Well, we should be scared because apparently we're missing delirium. And delirium is unfortunately very much underdiagnosed and it's quite dangerous. Um, Older adults come in and there's a lot of older adults. 10 to 17% of them are going to come to our emergency department with delirium. And it's going to be missed because we can only diagnose it correctly in half the time or like some studies say even like 14% of the time. So you can imagine how many of these cases we're missing. And the problem is that patients who have delirium are more likely to be admitted to the hospital, be admitted to the ICU, stay longer in the hospital, need discharge to places that are not their home. So like long-term care facilities, have prolonged cognitive and functional decline. And it's very psychologically distressing because they can remember bits and pieces of it and their family definitely remembers what they see. So it's, it is the most common dangerous diagnosis you're missing. So Dr. Kuja, can you tell me what exactly is delirium? So delirium is an acute fluctuating disturbance in awareness or cognition and attention. And that's a change from a patient's baseline and it's not explained by a pre-existing condition. So basically they're confused. I feel like confusion sometimes applies to a lot of our patients and tracking down baselines can be difficult. Um, what do you recommend, which people and context do you reach out to, to help you determine if this patient that maybe carries a diagnosis of dementia, but is acutely delirious in a manner that you would need to then intervene? Well, that's a really great question. And it's even more complicated by the fact that the most common risk factor for delirium is dementia. So half of the patients who are going to develop delirium are going to have underlying dementia which makes it a little tricky. But one of the best ways or one of the easiest ways to kind of figure that out is that with delirium, it's right there in the definition. They have an alteration in their attention. And that is not something that's present in dementia. Patients with dementia can pay attention to what you're saying. They can pay attention to their tasks. Patients with delirium cannot. And that is one of the most important differentiating factors. Great, how else can we diagnose this in the ED with our patients? So first we need to think of it. If you don't think of it, you'll not diagnose it, right? So we need to screen our patients for it. Some people say, hey, you know what? We should just screen all of our older adults. And some people say, hey, you know what? We can't really do that because we don't have time or capacity. And let's just reach a realistic goal, which is screen our at-risk people. So our people with multiple comorbidities, polypharmacy, underlying dementia, 
um, underlying functional impairment, hearing impairment, and so on. Those are our patients that are most vulnerable to this. And screening can be quite simple. You just look at your patient and ask yourself, are they alert or not? Are they hyper alert? Are they more hyperactive? Are they fidgety? Are they anxious? Are they agitated and jumping out of bed? That's kind of obvious, right? But the ones that are tricky are the ones that are hypoactive, the ones that are under alert or hypo alert, if you say that. So these patients can open their eyes, they look at you, but they don't really maintain much eye contact. They're very easily sleepy or drowsy or so on. And those are the patients, if you just look at someone that takes 10 seconds or less, and you realize they're not exactly alert, then they've screened positive. That's one way to look at it. Another screening tool to do that is to try to test their attention. And whether that's just by watching them, so observing how they can pay attention to your conversation and kind of carry on with one line of thought, or they keep kind of switching from one topic to the other, or they completely forget what the beginning of the sentence was, or something that's a little more formalized, which we all use, or we've all learned how to use in things like the mini mental status exam or whatever. So basically counting backwards or spelling backwards or saying the name of the month backwards, that doesn't require necessarily a knowledge base or a memory per se, unless somebody has severe memory impairment. And if you just want to check, you can ask them to do it forwards first to make sure that, well, they know how to spell lunch or whatever word it is that you pick. If you use that to screen patients for delirium, so ask them, hey, can you do X task backwards, whatever it is that you like? And I do it as part of my neuro exam. Yeah, please don't ask me to count backwards from sevens. <laughs> oh, so <laughs> that's the thing. That. It does not have to be this weird serial sevens because I have no idea what these set. I don't know who came up with the serial sevens. That's a conversation for a whole other day. <laughs> what I do is that actually when I ask people to do the Romberg um, or when I'm doing their pronator drift, one or, one or the other, I actually just ask them to count backwards from 10. And that's it. That's really efficient too. And that's important because in order for things to be doable, they have to be efficient. So ask them to do something backwards, which again, measures their attention more than anything else. And then watch what their level of consciousness is, their level of awareness. And if, it, if they're not alert or if they make more than one mistake when they do the backward count or backward months or whatever it is, then they screen positive. Okay, great. So you've screened them and they're positive. Now what? So you need to confirm that it is in fact delirium. And that's the part that's a little trickier and takes more than 10 seconds. And that's when you do the BCAM or the brief confusion assessment method, which we're all familiar with using in the ICU patients, especially those that are intubated and so on to look for delirium. And that's when you have to actually like pick up the phone and figure out, is this acute or chronic? You have to look at records. Um, and is it fluctuating? That's the other one that's important there because by definition it's fluctuating. You have times where they're a little bit better and times where they're a little bit worse. And sometimes, you know, you just got to ask your nursing staff who's been in that room longer than you or more than you, or have been, you know, on shift more than you today and ask them if this patient has been this way the whole time. And if they tell you, no, you know what, they've been fluctuating back and forth, then that is by definition delirium. You just checked your box for acute, you checked your box for fluctuating, and then you have to check that box for attention. They have to have a problem with their attention. And then the fourth element is that there must be a problem with either their cognition so their ability to understand things or make comprehensible or understandable thought processes and share them with you um, if they're actually making sense, basically, or if they're having an issue with their awareness. And you can just always just go on MD Calc 
or Google it or anything like that, there's the BCAM and it just gives you these elements to remind you what they are. So run it real quick, see with your patients. And if you're not sure, it's always better to err on the side of caution. Unless you have confirmation that this is chronic, then it is always acute until proven otherwise. Okay, so you've screened them looking at alertness, acute changes in their ability to pay attention and follow threats, and you've gotten enough collateral from maybe family at home, bedside nurses to see that this is both acute and fluctuating in nature. Now, what do you do to treat it? And kind of going maybe a step backwards, can we prevent this in the emergency department? So those are really great questions. Once we decide that this patient has delirium or once we're really suspecting delirium, we've got to ask ourselves why. And in the majority of cases, it's quite multifactorial. We used to think, oh, they have a UTI. That's the answer to all the questions in the world, right? Well, it is the answer in 50% of patients. They do have some underlying infection. But the tricky part is that a lot of it is multifactorial. So there are things like medications. Anticholinergics are evil. Do not give them to older adults. Please don't. Um, they can that and a whole bunch of other medications, and they're very well documented in the literature. There's the beers list, which you can just download the PDF, have it on your desktop, and be able to kind of look through the medications there. And then in 20% of patients, it's neither of these. But again, it's multifactorial in a lot of them. So things like dehydration, pain, and sometimes pain is not like you broke something. Pain is I'm really constipated, or pain is I really need to pee and I have urinary retention. Sometimes it's just being in an unfamiliar environment. And especially with what we've gone through recently in the past couple of years, a lot of our older adults were presenting to the emergency department and staying there for hours by themselves. And especially if they have like hearing aids that are not with them or glasses that they didn't bring with them. And they didn't bring their cane or their walker and now they're stuck sitting in a bed. They can't really see much, they can't hear much. They're not getting up to go to the bathroom, which is a normal human thing for them because they don't have their aid with them, then guess what? That's going to precipitate delirium. And that's exactly why it's really important for us to not only ask why is this person having delirium right now, but how can we stop our patients from developing delirium in our emergency departments? Because we know that people stay for a very long time in our EDs. We would all love to have people in and out in an hour, right? It's not physically possible. But in these patients, they are the most vulnerable to having bad things happen from prolonged length of stay in the ED. That includes like ED boarding. So studies have shown that people who stay, older adults that are um, stay for 10 hours or more in the ED are more likely to develop delirium than those that don't. So that's kind of one thing to do. Also try to reorient them. So having a clock in the room that's, you know, the correct time um, and a calendar that's the correct date. Sometimes people hire sitters, which has very mixed data, but if the sitter is just staring at the patient, not very helpful. The point is for them to engage with the patient and reorient them as long as it's not stressful for the patient. Because a patient with advanced dementia is probably going to find it quite stressful if you continue to try to remind them of things that they can't remember. So that's kind of a fine line there. If you're able to involve family or more importantly loved ones, whether they're family or not, that's very helpful because then you're adding a sense of like peace and familiarity to that setting. And you know what? If there can't be there in person, then technology is amazing. We can definitely have video chats. We can have them talk on the phone. There was actually a study that was done in a long-term care facility of patients with dementia where they had video recordings of their family 
talking to them to calm them down. And basically they would just play it for the patients. And that seemed to help patients develop delirium less and keep their delirium better under control because then they're soothed by the, although not real presence, but electronic presence of a soothing presence or soothing family member, then that really, really helped. We need to remember that we need to feed our patients. We need to make sure they're hydrated. We need to make sure that it's easy for them to get up and pee and use the bathroom and that they don't feel tethered to the bed with monitors that are not really relevant. If they're there for an ankle sprain, do they really need to be on a cardiac monitor? No, unless of course you're worried about syncope or something like that. Do they really need to have an IV line connecting them to some pump for something they don't necessarily need? It makes them feel tethered and it does worsen the delirium. And of course, Foley's like, that's a whole other story. <laughs> so I always feel bad. I can't like give them a, a nice room that has a window to give them day and night signals. And we, you know, try to do some, some reorientation, like dimming the lights at nighttime. Um, you know, but I, I think like you've brought up a lot of points of some simpler tasks that we certainly can do to help them. Um, and I especially like the idea of the recording of family um, because sometimes family have other obligations or they have to go home. And, um, you know, I think some of our emergency departments have more iPads than we did pre-COVID because of the family restrictions. And so maybe we could allocate some of those resources. I know our ED has extra walkers, not so much canes that I'm aware of. Um, the one thing I really struggle with replacing is hearing aids. They're so expensive. They're almost always left at home and listening to your doctor and to your nurse and to your tech is so important in receiving your care. Does your emergency department or departments, like do they have something that can take the place of a hearing aid? So that's a really great point. And the problem is that you can't really just replace that for older adults, but sometimes you can just call a family member or a friend or a neighbor and say, hey, can you pick this up for them? They're gonna be here for a long time. What some people have done, and I've had very varied success with that, but you can definitely give it a try, is to actually put your stethoscope in the patient's ears and speak into it very gently. And that works at amplifying that, especially when we have a lot of the disposable stethoscopes that barely work, which is exactly what you want. You want to just barely, amplify your voice. But that's definitely something that's important, especially with masks, because a lot of older adults, especially ones who don't want hearing aids, can't actually hear you. They have just learned how to read lips over a very long time. And now we just took that away from them. And they're floundering because they can't hear us because they were so dependent on not hearing us, but seeing us talk more so, maybe even not realizing as much. So that's definitely something to keep in mind with the masks as well. But that does make things harder. So I have two final questions kind of in one, and that's relative to the treatment. And I know sometimes our more hyperactive delirium patients require sedation to facilitate their care, to keep them safe. So question one, what treatment do you recommend for these patients? And so naturally question two, which is tied in is, is there an acute treatment aside from addressing these things and reorienting patients that we need to implement in the ED for those hypoactive, or is this primarily to stay focused on picking up this more subtle presentation of delirium? That's a great question. And I think that the nature of life is that the, you know, the squeaky wheel gets all the grease, right? 
And that's why we pick up a lot of the hyperactive deliriums. And those are the only ones we really pay attention to because they are very squeaky and they are being disruptive of their own care more so than anything else. And that's why we notice them. And that's why we medicate them. And keep in mind that medications don't actually fix the delirium. They don't make things better per se. They just help you take care of them so that the delirium can go away. And there used to be this old thought process that thankfully, hopefully, is not that prevalent anymore, is that if you give everyone medications, it will prevent delirium. So they used to give like health care at all for everyone, and that, it does not work. Don't do that. Um, so if you're asking like, hey, how can we sedate our older adults? That's a whole other topic of us talking about it. But just the short and sweet is if you're able to do it with something PO and they're not like running around and pulling everything off and like completely all over the place and they need something I am right the second, then trying to do a low dose oral atypical antipsychotic is probably the best thing that you can do. So something like risperidone or olanzapine, you can give olanzapine as I am as well, if you have access to that. And please, please don't be 52 these people. It is a terrible idea. Benzos, should not be given to older adults. Benadryl or diphenhydramine should not be given in delirious older adults. It's like because we're it's meeting just... the beer's criteria. Exactly. And the problem is that you see that. And unfortunately you see that from people who should know better where this is in the patient's medications or in their request in the ED or even as an inpatient to try to keep the patient calm and not delirious. And you're like, you're not really fixing anything. You're just making us not see it. And now that delirium is now becoming hypoactive and cooking in the background. So if it's safe for the patient, again, low dose oral atypical antipsychotic, because it's less medication interactions with what they probably have, because they're old and they probably have a lot of medications on board and oral medications have less side effects and they don't feel like something's being done to them. So it tends to go over a little bit better. With hypoactive delirium, there's no actual medication to fix it. You just need to treat the cause. You need to fix that infection, give them the antibiotics, give them the IV fluids, um, put in a Foley to treat the urinary retention if that's the problem. Give them acetaminophen for the fracture that's hurting. Give them, put on a lidocaine patch of that spot that hurts. Whatever it is that you need to do to try to take care of them, then do it. And that's going to help their delirium get better. Great. Thank you so much. I've learned a lot from you and I hope our RSA members also do with this podcast. And I look forward to hearing more at this conference. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for talking about older adults and delirium. Hopefully we'll all start doing a little bit better, not missing this common dangerous diagnosis. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AAEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with AAEM RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.